It's Tuesday, September 21st, and you've got Oz in your ears. You know, people put disco down, but that disco in my ears, it just wake me up. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, Radio Free Oz co-host, David Osmond across the studio for me here at Blue U. Really blue not, U? Really not well, we're not blue, and the U isn't blue, but I mean, you're not, well, I don't know. And we're out in the woods, and it's been raining, and yeah. now it's sunny, and it's gorgeous, and we're having a wonderful time. And I think fall is officially upon us now, Dave. It's, hey, it's 21st. That's right. It's the 21st, and it's a good time to start the comedy calendar. Comedy calendar. Yeah. What good idea. Yeah, yeah. On the 21st of September. Yes. Which that's today out there somewhere. Somewhere. This somewhere is time shift, of course. We're not actually mm. doing this on the 21st, but you don't have to remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Who cares? The 21st is the birthday of Chuck Jones, the guy who invented the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movies, uh-huh, right? Chuck right. Jones. Born in 1912. He's been not been with us for a while. Was there a 1912? I mm. guess so. Henry Gibson. The Laugh-In resident poet he was on Laugh-In in those days. I saw Henry Gibson in New Faces of 1956 in New York. My aunt took me to it. Alec, uh, Alice Ghostly, Eartha Kitt. Uh, uh, and and and, he, and him, right? Right. And and Ronnie Graham. And you can buy the movie for a buck on DVD <laughs> yeah. out there and see that same show, because I did. It's wonderful. It blew my mind. It's yeah. one of the things that encouraged me to be a comedian. So he was born on this day. Yep. Terrific. Uh, in 1935. So he's only a year or two older than uh, the locally assembled We're alive, character. Dave. Don't worry. We're okay. here. And Bill Murray, born in 1950. Uh, who's still making movies and uh, sure doing a great is. job at uh, 60 years old, which yeah, he must be this he's year. He's kicking it around, yeah. So I'll bring in these uh, um, uh, uh, comedy birthdays, uh, comedy calendar, um, every day of the show, if you like the idea. And yeah. we'll uh, we'll celebrate some people who've brought, brought some laughs along to us and others. Now, in, in the midst of all this, I, I know you have an, an article there on Meg Whitman and oh, the I money do. she's been oh, spending. Oh, my gosh. I, I don't want to leave the beginning of this show without giving people a perspective. You know, they say, ah, oh, you know, if we, we, we've got to keep the old Bush tax cuts alive because then the, the rich will get more money and they use that to invest in small businesses and they buy things that, that put money in the pockets of people on Main Street. No. They buy they, 37 thousand square foot houses in places that you know you can't get to without a boat and a they boat. and they try to buy elections you know oh. and, and you know something it's not just that they're trying to buy the office it's so they can for six months they can look at themselves on tv and believe the puffery that they're, the people are writing about them well meg whitman republican candidate for governor of california right okay with her announcement on tuesday that would have been a week ago that she had contributed another 15 million dollars of her personal fortune in her quest to defeat Attorney General Jerry Brown. How much so far? Ms. Whitman uh, became the leading self-financing political candidate in American history with a total of $119 million of her own dollars. Okay, she beat out Bloomberg, who only got 109.2. But remember, Bloomberg spent all that just to be mayor. Yep. She's running at least for governor of a bankrupt state. He was just <laughs> running for mayor of a bankrupt city. And, and, and it cost him $186 for every vote well, he got. He should have just given the money to the people one at a time. They'd have, they'd have done it. Sweet. Well, so there, are the th- the, there were 10 of these self-financing 
gazillionaires out there. Well, there are only three left, thank goodness. Uh, According to, let's see, the Center for Responsive Politics, I like that, monitoring federal campaign contributions, Linda McMahon. (laughs) Oh, Smackdown McMahon. Smackdown McMahon. uh, She's in in second place with $22 million of her own wrestling money, and they didn't have to wrestle her to get it either. And they didn't have to wrestle it out of her. Here, come on, smack it down, 22 mil, no problem. So the two grizzly mamas out there, really grizzly, uh, are, are and way behind. In third place is a guy named uh, Tom Ganley, yeah. Ohio businessman, Republican ca- a candidate for Congress, uh, uh, leads the House side at... Three million dollars. Oh, it's nothing. It's oh, nothing. Pocket on. change. What don't are we he, talking about yeah, here? No, ch- he's a chump change guy. No, I, I just love it. And, and Meg is spending all of this money to beat the craftiest politician since his father was Governor Jerry Brown, who is known for spending nothing and is nothing. In fact, until <laughs> takes start, the bus, you yeah, know. I mean, in, until the primaries were over, he'd spent something like sixty-five thousand dollars. And he's like two points ahead of her or two points behind her. He's going to beat her. And, and, and what does she get for all this? She gets a, a lot of celebrity. She gets celebrity exa- time. She couldn't buy. FaceTime. Any more FaceTime. Well, this. look, uh, where, where has it gone? Wait a minute. Wait, $119 million of her own money. This has gone to presumably the largest and most uh, uh, undemocratically run and owned radio and television stations in, in the, the state. In yeah. the world, yeah. I mean, Don't she, you think so? Yeah, she's building. She's where else she, is it gone? It's gone to Murdoch. Union sign makers? No, I don't uh, think so. Maybe a few here and there. Most of them made, you know, are made by uh, prisoners who are in, on death row in Beijing. But <laughs> you know, but that's okay. It's 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 a free market. Well, we wish Meg the best luck in the world, and I hope that she is roundly defeated. From Bloomberg News, at least twenty-five super PACs, including one link to. Carl Rove, are fueling a surge in money for this year's elections following the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that struck down limits on corporate campaign spending. Yeah, that was a really good decision run by the most conservative court since since uh, the New Deal when, um, you know, FDR tried to pack it. Maybe Obama should pack this court with some people with common sense and compassion. That won't happen. These political action committees can take unlimited company, union, and individual donations and explicitly urge voters to support or oppose candidates, unlike ordinary PACs and nonprofit groups. Like other PACs, they must register with the Federal Election Commission and disclose donors. They can say whatever they want politically in the advertising, said Michael Toner, a former FEC chairman who's among the lawyers dubbing them super PACs. It's very liberating. Yeah, look who's getting liberated. There comes the ever-jovial, ever-jowly Carl Rove, man, running with the big dogs. He's been liberated. Put him back in a box. American Crossroads, a group advised by Rove, a top advisor to former President George W. Bush, said it had raised more than $17 million. That includes a million from Dixie Rice Agricultural Corporation, a company led by Harold Simmons, also the chairman of Dallas-based Titanium Metals Corporation, a trust controlled by Gerald Parencio, former chairman of New York-based Univision Communications Incorporated, also gave a million bucks. That may just be the beginning. 
American Crossroads also has an issue advocacy group that doesn't have to disclose donors, and it won't say how much of the $52 million it plans to raise in this campaign will go towards that effort. $52 million that could be used somewhere else much more effectively with much more positive human impact. But hey, the Supreme Court says it's okay, so rock on! Other groups aren't even registering as PACs and will be able to spend millions on ads without disclosing their contributors as long as they steer clear of expressly advocating or, or for or against any particular candidate. Well, it's easy to get around that. Hmm. Americans are seeing a flood of attack ads by shadowy groups with harmless-sounding names. President Barack Obama, whose Democratic Party is vulnerable to losses in the midterm balloting, said in August 21st weekly address, we don't know who's behind these ads and we don't know who's paying for them. And you know something? We ought to know. The new super PACs emerge as spending is already surpassing uh, past midterm elections. As of late last month, outside groups and the political parties have spent $150 million on ads, up $41 million from the same period in 2006, because they've got the money. The Supreme Court in January ruled against prohibitions on corporate campaign spending, allowing companies to use their treasuries to support or oppose candidates. Wait a minute. Corporations are creatures of American law. They are treated as individuals before the law, and yet they are not. And it is time that we pierce that corporate veil. It is time we decapitate the corporations. The FEC sanctioned the new PACs on July 22nd, saying that because of the court decision, there is no basis to impose contribution limits on committees that spend money independently of candidates. Most won't have to disclose contributors until mid-October. Yeah, like anyone's paying attention. Of the 25 super PACs, at least nine lean Republican and 10 Democratic. Sounds fair to me. There may also be dozens more that haven't formally outlined their plans to the FEC, said Mary Brandenberger, an agency spokeswoman. The super PACs include new units of established groups, such as the Club for Growth, which supports lower taxes. In fact, it basically supports no taxes at all and favors Republicans. Mm-hmm. And the League of Conservation Voters, which primarily backs Democrats. Yeah, but how much money in the Club for Growth coffers and how much in the coffers of the League of Conservation Voters? Hmm, I wonder if there's an even scale there. Now, American Crossroads may be the biggest. Grove and former Republican National Committee Chairman Ed Gillespie. Now there's a couple of great dogs in the front of your sled. Hmm, Carl and Ed. They serve as fundraisers and informal advisors for the group, headed by former Republican Chairman Mike Duncan. What a crowd to have a couple of teenies with. American Crossroads spent $454,342 last month to support Republican Rob Portman's Ohio Senate bid, which is doing well, by the way. Its nonprofit arm released new ads on September 2nd as part of a $3 million buy targeting four Democrats, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, and Senate nominees Jack Conway in Kentucky and Robin Carnahan in Missouri. Rove didn't respond to requests for comments. He doesn't because if he opens his mouth, all those snakes come out, and it just isn't very telegenic. You'll see more money spent on the Republican side, said Larry Noble, a former FEC general counsel. Some super PACs uh, are being started by groups that ran 527 organizations, which can take unlimited donations, yet can't explicitly say vote for or vote no against a candidate. 
The 527 groups, uh, named after the section of the tax code that governs them, also includes Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, They Were Neither, which won after Democratic presidential nominee John Kerry so viciously in 2004, Swift Boat Veterans, League of Conservation Voters, Club for Growth, and eight other groups later ran into trouble with the FEC for backing candidates drawing more than $3 million in fines. It's the backbone of the brand new American fascism. The conflation of big business, big military, big Wall Street, and big megachurch. And as long as we allow these people to live in the world of tax loopholes, our democracy is going to be hung through those very loopholes. We've got to put an end to this. If we don't, we're just a bunch of punky, lackluster liberals sitting around waiting for somebody to come along and solve it for us. There's an article out of Talking Points Memo, Dave, about a guy that, uh, you know, is very much one of us, Rush Limbaugh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Radio broadcaster of great stature and uh, importance in this country. And a fire sign theater head. Yeah. Remember when Hillary Clinton brought forward, this is in the first year of the Clinton uh, thing, the her health plan. He did Beat the Reaper, one of our one of our um, you know bits from Electrician, our first album, by heart, on the radio, immediately. Right, didn't have a script in his hand. Knew it word for word. So the old rusher is is a firehead. But we go no further in our confluence. Okay? That's it. Yeah, it seems to be as far as it's going to go. Okay, well, he is not a bozo on our bus currently. Currently not. In fact, we're we're, we're running over these bozos. Well, he hoisted himself on his own, you know, uh, petard uh, this week. Um, uh, rush to Limbaugh, as I call him, or rush to judgment Limbaugh, actually told his listeners that uh, about a guy named Judge Robert Vinson, a federal district court judge in Pensacola, Florida, who's presiding over a legal challenge to the health care reform. Right? Here's, a, here's what, he, what Rush said. Who is this judge? Judge Clyde Roger Vinson is a Ronald Reagan appointee. Judge Clyde Roger Vinson is an avid hunter. He's an amateur taxidermist. Do you know what a taxidermist is? That's right. For our liberal caller today, that would not be good news. A taxidermist stuffs dead game. If you go into a big all-male club, you'll see some moose head over the fireplace. A taxidermist is responsible for it. I love this Rush Limbaugh. He thinks that somehow killing things and stuffing them and being big men in old clubs is what men, real men do, and all the rest of these wusses, you know. I wonder uh, if his pants have cuffs. I don't. But go ahead. I wonder if there's anything in his pants. (laughs) After a 2002 hunting trip, he's saying this still about Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, During which he killed three brown bears, Vincent had their heads mounted over the door through which defendants must pass to enter the courtroom. At the time, Vincent said the sight of the severed bear heads would instill the fear of God into the accused. The heads were removed in June 2002. It didn't even take a year, like he's saying, following complaints by local defendants' rights groups. Well, what a very scary conservative Yeah, sound. that's really what? three bare heads yeah. over the court. To, oh, yeah. Too bad it's bogus, it's Dave. It's phony as yeah. the day is long. Judge Vincent is not much of a hunter. He said, I've never killed a bear, and I'm not Davy Crockett. That's my favorite quote yeah. of the week. I've never killed a bear and I'm not Davy Crockett. In fact, his main hobby is horticulture. He's the president of the American Camellia Society. Yep. That's very close to killing bears. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind it's of. A, it's a C and a K. I mean, the yeah. sound is the same, but Camellia and killing is not exactly As it. his wife, Ellen, uh, asked uh, the New York Times rhetorically, can you imagine the president of the American Camellia Society having three stuffed bears in the courthouse? Well, I can imagine it, but I also, I'm really into Hieronymus Bosch, too. Well, we got a lot of stuffed bear. Well, we don't have any stuffed bears on the island, but I even have a, a, a carved wooden bear on my front. I mean, bears are totem animals, you know. David. 
you just don't a kill them stuffed and shoot them head and put them of on a your bear thing. that was shot is not the same yes. as the simulcrum of a bear chainsawed or chiseled out of a piece of wood. Come back to me now. Okay, I'm uh, with you, Pete. Uh, okay. When, when Limbaugh was called out over the, <laughs> yes, the incorrect information, <laughs> a spokesman insisted, one of his spokesmen, that the story had come from an article in the Pensacola News Journal. See, these People are so arrogant, they think, I just tell them this, that's it, story's over. Yeah. Only, the, it turns out that this, this reporter doesn't work just off of rumor, but actually called the newspaper. Only the news journal says no such article ever existed. The only reference to such an article online, the footnotes to Judge Vincent's Wikipedia page, which lists the article as having appeared on June 31st, 2003. <laughs> there is no June 31st. There is a Santa Claus. Limbaugh just didn't know not to believe everything he reads on Wikipedia. But wait a minute. He did know. In fact, he was ranting about it last October after a series of racist quotes were misattributed to him on Wikipedia, or actually on their sister site, WikiQuote. I mean, whale rushed. Everybody in the world knows you don't believe anything on Wikipedia because anybody can go up there and put anything on it that they want to. Uh, well, gee, I think maybe Rush needs a new producer. Yeah, either that or a, a new bottle of something, man, that he's missing. But well, oh. That's that sore back. It goes right to your head. What? Oh, what the, the head? It goes the right head, to the head, head over, over the door. door. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, please. By the way, we also have uh, FM right here. FM over here? Uh -huh. Let me try it. Oh, open your wife and head in any direction on the freeway of your choice. And we'll see you in a couple of hours. Here at Ralph Spoils Ford Motors, the world's biggest, here in the city of fine music. Thanks for the insurrection, and now back to our morning concert and afternoon showtime favorite, The Magic Bowl Movement from Symphony in C Minus by Johann Amadeus Majetsky. From Politico, the Obama administration this week will mark the second anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the ensuing Wall Street meltdown with an ironic bit of bipartisanship. Letters of thanks to some of the congressional Republicans who helped fashion the government's response in the fall of 2008. No one in the Treasury Department is expecting any appreciation from House Minority Leader John Boehmer or Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. There's hardly a Republican who wants to be associated with perhaps the most successful and least popular American economic policy in the past decade. The Troubled Asset Relief Program is widely viewed as the original sin of the Obama administration, though it was put together under President George W. Bush and succeeded far beyond expectations. It's widely seen as the tipping point for disgust with elites and insiders of all kinds, though it could also be seen as those insiders' finest moment, a successful attempt to at least partially fix their own mistakes. Rammed through Congress in the final months of the Bush administration by a political and financial establishment that felt it had looked into the abyss, TARP had the support of not just President Barack Obama, but also Mitt Romney and Sarah Palin. It's become demonized on the left and the right by screamers, Glenn Beck and Rachel Maddow, who have no interest in the facts. They're just interested in hyperbolizing and generating attention, lamented New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg, a key player in guiding the measure through the upper chamber and one of the few Republicans willing to talk about TARP in positive terms. While Obama last week made reference to having narrowly avoided another depression, he and other leaders have generally avoided trying to explain that mechanism in favor of trying to change the subject. All that, despite a broad consensus of economists who think things would have been worse without the bank rescue, and perhaps far worse. 
In one simple example, American workers' paychecks might well not have arrived. Think bread lines and cat food. The TARP is probably the most effective, large-scale government program that the public has vehemently decided was a bad idea and therefore has only the most tepid political defenders, said the Brookings Institution's Douglas Elliott. Unfortunately, the right thing to do for the public just sounds so wrong to Main Street in this case. Yeah, like Main Street is really paying attention. I mean, really going in and getting the facts. A perfect example of how ignorance is driving us down the wrong road at the wrong time. The policymakers who emerged shaken from a September 16, 2008 briefing by Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson never managed to win credit for the apocalypse avoided from an American public furious at them for allowing the mess to develop in the first place. Yeah, man, I mean, our lifestyles were so cool and everything was just so available and affordable and there was so much credit. And then you buzzards come along and you make all this happen and then you solve it kind of and damn you for both. The attacks on the bailout are emblematic of an age that finds politicians generally scared of an angry electorate and elitist to be the ultimate dirty word. Both President Bush and President Obama deserve tremendous credit for having pursued that policy in the face of a withering, irresponsible attack from the left and the right, full of misstatements and representations about what actually happened, Gregg said. The consensus of economists and policymakers at the time of the original TARP was that the U.S. government couldn't afford to experiment with an economic collapse. Yeah, that's not the kind of experiment I want to do in the back room with my little economy chemistry set. Oh, look, I made a mistake. The economy collapsed. That view in mainstream economic circles has, if anything, only hardened with the program's success in recouping the federal spending. A study this summer by former Fed Vice Chairman Alan Blinder and Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi was representative of that consensus. They projected that without the federal action, TARP and the stimulus, America's gross domestic product would have fallen more than 7% in 2009 and almost 4% in 2010, compared with the actual combined decline of about 4%. That's major! It would not be surprising if the underemployment rate approached one-fourth of the labor force, they wrote, of this scenario, with outright deflation in prices and wages in 2009 through 2011. This dark scenario constitutes a 1930s-like depression. Remember, Christine Romer got all the people together in the Obama administration before inauguration and said, hey, bros, this is a 1930s-like depression unless we put $800 billion on on the table and get things moving. Back in 2008, that view was persuasive. Republicans like McConnell and Blunt swallowed their distaste for government action and persuaded their colleagues to vote with them for TARP. Liberals like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and, and Massachusetts Representative Barney Frank swallowed their dislike of Bush and distrust of the bankers. They did the right thing at a very great personal cost and in a very intense political environment, said Tony Fratto, a former spokesman for the Bush Treasury and White House, who said he finds TARP's persistent unpopularity very, very frustrating. To me, that was one of the most critical pieces of legislation ever passed, he said. I'm Skyping with Scott Wilde. How are you, Scott? 
I'm doing excellent as always. Oh, you certainly are. And and we've got a, a real success story to tell. And it's about the Los Angeles Free Press, which, by the way, historically, was the newspaper that was coincident with Radio Free Oz back in the mid-60s in Los Angeles when I launched when I launched Oz on KPFK. In fact, Art, Kunk, yep. yeah, Art Kunkin's uh, Free Press was already very much in existence, and they did a lot for Oz. I had my picture in the paper doing this and that. It was very much the, the one of the great alternative mags. Well, flash forward to now, I'm starting Oz again, and, and Free Press is now a web magazine. That Steve, right. that Steve Finger has brought back. And, and he approached us a while ago and said, I'd like to work with you guys and, and have you on the site. And we worked for a while and then he kind of disappeared and he came back and he said, now is the time. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to use people like yourself as a fulcrum for us to do other comments, to do news stories around your commentary. So up I call. You, Scott, and Phil Fountain, for example, yep. we get together and we say, what are we going to do for this guy? And tell us, tell him, tell him the story, Scott, because it's, you know, you really made it happen. Well, one of the things, you know, again, this is an example of relevant links back and forth. You know, um, one of the ways to increase the popularity of your website, as we all know, is to get other people to link to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of just going out and creating and just telling, you know, hey, I'll trade you a link for this. It really helps when you can create relevant links of like-minded sites, like-minded individuals. So the synergy that, that once was in the, in the mid-60s is now back. Um, again, like-minded individuals. So it's a very relevant link. So what we did was, you know, as we were discussing through our Skype calls, um, we figured that if we could get some of the content from our sites using the RSS feed uh, to, to populate the sidebar on his site, give the people a little bit of a taste of, you know, maybe the teaser of that article, the, the first three, four lines, if you will, uh, I think 150 characters or something like that. Um, and then when they want to read more, when they click on the title, uh, it actually links back to the Radio Free Oz site and it helps to drive traffic. Um, to reciprocate back to Steve and the Los Angeles Free Press, we put banner links on our site you know, so they're giving us some link love back and we're giving them some link love back. And um, when people come, you know, we're going to create new readers for him uh, that maybe weren't aware of that, the synergy between the two entities. So when they come to our site, they're looking at your blog, they're looking at today's show, they're going to see a nice banner for Radio Free Oz. When they go to his site, uh, he's going to definitely drive new uh, he introduced Radio Free Oz to a whole new listenership uh, yeah. that maybe wasn't aware. Yeah, that that's already happening. I checked, you know, the back end uh, on our site, and there's already people coming up there. So this, fr- you know, we know from from Free Press. It's amazing because it's a new form of syndication. I.e., you've got Bergman's blog and the radio show, which every day that we post, you know, uh, new blogs and new shows, it automatically appears on the front page of the the Free Press, right? So it's a it's Absolutely. a ready, steady service, and people out there who who have the same kind of of material who want to get syndicated on other people's sites, regardless of what you do, this is a, a, a really simple, easy way to go. And the Oz, Absolutely. And the Oz Design Group, you know, we showed finger. Here's how it's done. Bingo. The next day, and there we were. I was completely, I was flummoxed. It was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's it's all it's all due to RSS, which stands again for really simple syndication. Yep. And this is the reason that we decided to launch the new 
Radio Free Oz in a WordPress environment because WordPress is a blog, but yet it has these uh, static pages that we can wrap around it, like for Friends of Oz and yep. uh, you know for the other things, other static sites that we have. But it now has because of the blog, it has this RSS where people can literally literally subscribe. Well, we can also force that subscription. So all we did was we went out to his site, logged into his admin yep. with his help, and we placed a little widget that uses RSS, so every day that thing comes back to our site, automatically checks to see if there's anything new and publishes it. So there's no extra work on our part. I think it took us maybe three minutes to hook this thing up, yep. and now that's all we ever have to do forever. And and, and all he has ever- to do, right? So, I mean, exactly. it's, it's, it's a marriage born somewhere in heaven. Well, this, this, <laughs> is, this is terrific, Scott, and... Uh, uh, I know you're going to be out for the Firesign Theater shows in Los Angeles in October. I'll actually be able to see you, you know, real face-to-face and just Skyping, <laughs> and I look forward to that. But we'll do a whole bunch more uh, Great Scots as this thing moves along because there's more happening all the time. We're going to be talking about a lot about membership, um, you know, subscription membership because we are launching Oz and Ears, and we're going to get into that real seriously really soon, okay? And we have a lot to talk about there, definitely. Okay, thanks a lot, Scott. No problem. Oh, Afghanistan, save us from Babylon. You yeah, can take your name away, can they take us to It shows Reuters photojournalist Namir Noradan, driver Saeed Chamak, and several others gunned down by U.S. military in a public square in eastern Baghdad. Pilots apparently mistook the camera carried by a newsman for a weapon. Come on, fire! After the initial shooting, an unarmed group of adults and children in a minivan arrived on the scene and attempted to transport the wounded. The van was fired upon as well. Come on! WikiLeaks showed photographs of the children in the van who survived. We can infer that these sort of attacks are going on in Afghanistan. This is the reality of modern warfare. Oh, Afghanistan, save us from Babylon. You can take your name away. Can they take us to The real reason that I think Americans are going to be concerned is that there, that is that there is no prospect that the mission for which their sons and daughters are being sent can be accomplished. Let me go. Get me to go. Just release. Get me to be released. Uh, I would recommend halting the surge uh, and a rather rapid withdrawal of a significant part of the U.S. forces that have been sent into Afghanistan over the last year. I want to go home. The men, Afghanistan men, who are in our prisons, they want to go home too. Oh, Afghanistan, save us from Babylon. If they can take your name away, can they take us too? Boom, boom. Lots of media thunderbolts shooting from the GOP's late summer grassroots thunderstorm. Yeah, grassroots. The only thing grassroots about the Koch brothers, who are joysticking half the doofuses making the noise, is the megalons they own and do not mow, and the toxic roots of their multi-billions that they are loath to share. 
clap after clap, headline after headline tagging the sky. Taxes, health care, abstinence, masturbation, Kenyan anti-colonialism. This wall of anger is remarkable for the tags that are missing. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Taliban, Iraq, collecting fingers, droning insurgents, unwinnable, unaffordable war. How come the nobodies in the George Washington costumes and the camel wife-beater ensembles aren't complaining about the dogs of war? They're still unleashed, taking WikiLeaks on our official explanation for everything. Why aren't they hounding Commander-in-Chief Obama? It's where he's most vulnerable. As a war leader, Barack's a miserable failure. He can run the Harvard Law Review, organize Chicago's South Side, socialize medicine, buy General Motors and sell it back, but he doesn't have a scintilla of West Point or Langley in him. He's an outsider who's inherited a concocted global war on terror run by a militarizing CIA and an increasingly covert DOD. The Tea Party is not giving B. Hussein a pass out of kindness. They hate him the way the right hated FDR. As a child, a friend's mother gave me directions not to the toilet, but the Roosevelt. Fast forward to a parade in central Washington last week where a bunch of yobs ran afloat with a fellow yob in an Obama mask whipping the white guy who was pulling the cart. A chilling shade of medieval mummery that traditionally ends in hellmouth. They hate him, all right, but they treat him as if he and his Shabbos goy, Petraeus, are dispensational and gladly grant them all the time and money in the world to finish what can't be finished and win what can't be won. The baggers are not alone. They are but a subset of the great conformance. Of the 535 members of Congress, only a handful have put a lie to the quagmire of Afghanistan and Pakistan and challenged the endless transfusion of blood and treasure that keeps the monster alive. There is no anti-war movement roiling the streets because it's all so covert and the victims are from the other side of the world or the other side of town. I say... End the AFPAC occupation now and kill the deficit hawks and the endless war hawks with one stone. One true stone to take down the Frankenstein that is stalking our future. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I could really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I could really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. It's 98, like I'm eating lunch off a styrofoam tray, yeah. trying to be the next rapper coming out the A, hoping for a record deal to ignore my pain, yeah, now let's pretend like I'm on the stage, and when my beat drops, everybody goes insane, okay, and everybody know my name, and everywhere I go, people want to hear me sing, oh yeah, and I just dropped my new album, on the first week I did 500,000, gold in the spring, and diamond in the fall, and then the world tour just to top it all off. Like they call me the greatest yeah. Selling 
selling out arenas with big ass stages and everybody loved me and no one ever hated just try to use imagination Can you pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars i can really use a wish right now wish right now wish right now Can you pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars i can really use a wish right now wish right now wish right now okay Let's pretend like this never happened Like I never had dreams of being a rapper Like I didn't write raps up in all of my classes Like I never used to run away into the blackness now Let's pretend like it was all good Like I didn't live staring in the notebook Like I did the things that I probably knew I should But I ain't have neighbors, that's why they call it hood Yeah, now let's pretend like I ain't got a name Before they ever call me B.O.B. or A.K.A. Bobby Ray I'm talking back before the mixtapes Before the videos and the deals and the fame yeah. before they ever once compare me to andre before i ever got on my space yeah. before they ever noticed my face yeah. so let's just yeah. pretend and make wishes out of airplanes can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars i can really use a wish right now wish right now wish right now can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars i can really use a wish right now wish right now And it seems like yesterday It was just a dream But those days are gone They're just memories And it seems like yesterday It was just a dream But those days are gone Let's pretend Marshall Mathers never picked up a pin Let's pretend things would have been no different Pretend he procrastinated, had no motivation Pretend he just made excuses that were so paper thin They could blow away with the wind Marshall, you're never gonna make it Makes no sense to play the game, there ain't no way that you win Pretend he just stayed outside all day and played with his friends Pretend he even had a friend to say was his friend And it wasn't time to move and schools weren't changing again He wasn't socially awkward and just strange as a kid He had a father and his mother wasn't crazy as shit And he never dreamed he could rip stadiums and just lazy as shit Fuck a talent show in the gymnasium, bitch You want him out the shit? Quit daydreaming, kid You need to get your cranium checked You're thinking like an alien, it just ain't realistic Now pretend pain just make him angry with this shit And there was no one he could even aim when he's pissed it And his alarm went off to wake him, but he didn't make it to the rap Olympics Slept through his plane and he missed it He's gonna have a hard time explaining to Haley and Laney These food stamps and this wick shit Cause he never risked shit He hoped and he wished it, but it didn't fall in his lap So he ain't even here, he pretends Airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars I can really use a wish right now Wish right now, wish right now Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars I can really use a wish right now Wish right now, wish right now From the Huffinpuff, the poverty rate rose to 14.3% during 2009 from 13.2% the previous year as household income stayed flat and the number of people without health insurance reached the highest level since such data has been collected. This the government announced this week. The rich 
the ultra rich, the ones that are trying to keep all the tax cuts and keep all their money in their in their lousy little pockets should be ashamed to death. Hopefully, their children are going home and pointing fingers at them. Of course, there's great big rings on those fingers. The first year of Barack Obama's presidency started with 700,000 people losing their jobs each month and sensational reports of formerly middle-class families crowding 10 cities across the country. The 10 cities, it turned out, were there before the recession started, but the rise in poverty was real. For working-age people between 18 and 64, 2009 saw the highest poverty rate, 12.9% since 1965. That's a little over one in every eight people are officially in poverty, and they're in the working group, 18 to 64. This is third-world bullshit. The overall rate is the highest since 94. Some poverty watchers had expected the poverty rate to jump as high as 15%, and it may have because there's a lot of unreporting going on. Today's news is sobering, showing that 2009 was a year with increased poverty and rising numbers of uninsured Americans, said Rebecca Blank, the Commerce Department's Undersecretary for Economic Affairs. There is one primary reason for the fact that poverty did not rise and median income did not fall as much as the rise in the unemployment rate would suggest. Government assistance that moderated the effect of the recession on American families. Do you hear that, Tea Party? Do you hear that, right-wing, soulless, deficit hawks? Among the elderly, poverty actually fell largely because of increased Social Security payments. And have they privatized Social Security and put that all into the boom-dot-bust housing bubble market? Those people would indeed be dying. Not Well, dying perhaps, certainly dining on kitty food. Among working adults, expanded receipt of unemployment insurance helped cushion the effects of lost hours and jobs. In 2009, 43 million people lived in poverty, up from 39 million in 2008, according to the Census Bureau's annual income poverty and health insurance coverage report. The poverty threshold for a family of four, by the way, is an annual income of $21,954. That's good. You're going to raise a family of four. That's mom and dad and two kids on twenty-two grand a year before taxes. Excuse me. Household income, surprisingly, did not see a statistically significant change last year, but have declined 4.2% since the start of the recession. And, of course, income disparity is skyrocketing. Government safety net programs prevented most people from falling into poverty. Social Security kept 14 million people afloat, and unemployment insurance did the same for more than 2 million people, according to the report. Government health insurance programs like Medicaid and Medicare covered more people than ever before, but the increase was not enough to pick up the slack from the crumbling employment-based and private insurance markets. Crumbling, baby, crumbling. About 16.7% of Americans were uninsured. That's one out of every six. No insurance. 50.7 million people in 2009, the highest number of uninsured since the census started collecting the data in 1987. The steady erosion of employer-sponsored insurance in the 2000s became a landslide in 2009 when the unemployment rate took its largest one-year jump on record, said Elise Gould, an economist with the Progressive Economic Policy Institute. 6.6 million fewer Americans had job-based health insurance last year than in 2008. This is a scandal! 
Public insurance and critical provisions in the Recovery Act mitigated the damage to an extent. The number of uninsured Americans rose by only two-thirds that amount, or 4.3 million. Government assistance, the commonweal, the commonwealth, a serious redistribution of income. Oh, they say, tax me too high, and where is my incentive to make more? Well, go into your incredibly deep pockets and find it. From the Huffy, a small army of economists warned Congress yesterday not to focus on deficit reduction instead of job creation or else risk a 1937-style double-dip recession. History suggests that a tenuous recovery is no time to practice austerity, says a statement signed by more than 300 economists and policy experts. Of course, Sarah Palin knows that these are all just, you know, stuffy, holier-than-thou, wussy intellectuals and don't know nothing. And the more that sign, the bigger the conspiracy. Now, they say, these 300 economists... In the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal generated growth and reduced the unemployment rate from 25% in 1932 to less than 10% in 1937. However, the deficit hawks of that era persuaded President Roosevelt to reverse course prematurely and move toward budget balance. The result was a severe recession that caused the economy to contract sharply and sent the unemployment rate soaring. Democrats in Congress have had 1937 in mind since March 2009. We're not going to let it happen again, vowed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Nevertheless, deficit hawks dominated the debate in Congress this summer as Democratic leaders struggled to reauthorize a series of programs created by the 2009 stimulus bill. Pelosi and her counterparts in the Senate have had seemingly little choice other than to sacrifice things like COBRA health insurance subsidies and enhanced unemployment benefits to win the support of deficit hawkish Democrats and moderate Republicans. Moderate Republicans, now there's an endangered species. And the blue dog Democrats are usually flat planers from states with more hawks in the sky than people on the ground. This is about a high road to recovery versus a low road to fiscal balance, said Bob Kuttner of the American Prospect and co-author of the statement. The proper sequencing is, you get the recovery first, that requires increased public investment, and then the road to fiscal balance is much less arduous because people are working, businesses are investing, and tax revenues go up because you're back in recovery. We are in a depression. You can call it a double-dip recession if you're not allowed to use the D word, but it is the D word, and we've got to pump money into this broken economy problem is, remember, the great conformance. Nobody's talking about the billion dollars a day that's bleeding into AFPAC. Nobody's talking about all the money that's being siphoned off for an unwinnable empire, for for an adventure that should never have begun, and it's keeping us from feeding people and healing people at home. It's time to get our priorities straight. Hey, uh, if you have a moment, uh, we'd love for you to join us on Twitter. This is a a whole new social network outreach that we're getting into. Uh, And I think Twitter is is a really good way for people to meet each other and to know Oz and to spread Oz. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Oz Network and click on the follow button. And we'll be making some announcements on Twitter soon and you won't want to miss them. Okay, well, even if you do want to miss them, go up because that's your choice. 
Well, here's another one of those weird um, financial stories in, um, you know, in the city of a uh, place in California, a city called Bell. Oh, Bell, I know California. Bell well. Bell is down there. There's 40,000 people who live in Bell. I used to go do my Army Reserve in Maywood Bell. I know that hell. Well, um, there seems to be some problem with the salaries uh, that they're getting. Um, city manager, former city manager, Robert Rizzo, ex-police uh, chief Randy Adams, and three current city council members have... Um, been asked to return hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mr. Rizzo, this is the guy who's who's managing 40,000 people in the city of Bell, was making 800 grand a year. 800,000. And Mr. Adams was paid 457,000. Good old Jerry Brown, who's currently the attorney general, soon to be governor, called the salaries enormous and obscene. Yeah. Which uh, is certainly is true. And said that his office was looking at other cities where official salaries exceed $300,000, including, including the neighboring city of Vernon, yeah. which has 90 residents. Well, yeah. Vernon, Industry, Bell, those are all incorporated areas right down there in the midst of Industry, industry, industry. Yeah, I, I, as I say, I used to go to reserve meetings. There. There's nothing there. It is a wasteland, and they are famous for this kind of scandal. This has been going on for 15, 20 years in that place. You know, the funny thing is, right here in on Whidbey Island, in no. our little city of Langley. Don't tell me. Oh, yes, there's a great discussion about the mayor's salary, which is why this popped out of the newspaper at me. Well, what is the mayor getting, or what does the well, mayor want? Well, I think the mayor is getting what he wants, but everybody is, is saying, He's getting too much. And the news is the other mayors who preceded him are saying, well, it's not too much money. I used to make him. But uh, our current mayor in Langley says that he's a full-time mayor yeah, and that nobody else was a full-time mayor, so he deserves every dollar he gets. And it's probably not a whole lot of money anyway. Well, the guy used to cut hair. Well, the White House has tapped Elizabeth Warren as a special advisor to help set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that she had a whole lot to do with putting together in the first place. This from the HuffPost. And it's got a lot of the people who are uh, tied to the whole financial thing a little bit out of whack. The move allows her to act as an interim head of the CFPB and will enable her to begin setting up the agency immediately and prevent the GOP from filibustering her nomination. Oh, that's too bad. Those big boys, they just couldn't wait to filibuster again like they did last summer. Warren could serve until Obama nominates a permanent director, a nomination he's not required to make for some time. Obama could also nominate her as the permanent director in the near future. Um a prospect that has been discussed among top aides. Warren will also be named as a special advisor directly to Obama. The CFPB was a cornerstone of President Obama's Wall Street reform package, and Warren is credited as the intellectual founder of the agency. On March 10, 2009, Warren's path to the helm of the agency began as she joined Senators Dick Durbin, Chuck Schumer, and Representatives Bill Delahunt and Brad Miller in the Capitol Visitors Center to announce a bill to create what was then being called the Financial Product Safety Commission. See, she put it all together with the people that were most Wall Street connected. We're talking um, Durbin out of Illinois and Schumer out of uh, you know New York Wall Street and uh, Massachusetts, which is very big in the financial business, and others. So she worked with all of them to make this happen, okay? She, and and um, 
She said, basically, at the microphone, she laid out how the financial crisis could have been prevented had an effective FPSC been in place. She offered the example of a loan with a low teaser rate and an obscured prepayment penalty. Uh, quote, prepayment penalties are a way to try to fool borrowers into thinking the price is $1,100 a month. That's the teaser rate, when in fact the real price of this product is the equivalent of $1,900 a month. And if you try to refinance out of the product, you'll pay a prepayment penalty. That's how the company will make its money. You'll either pay higher interest rates later on, or you'll pay a prepayment penalty to get out of it. When the price rises to $1,900 a month or higher, the borrower can't refinance, can't make the payment, and goes into foreclosure, she explained. If there had been an agency like the Financial Product Safety Commission that had said, you just don't get to fool people on pricing, then that would have, uh, that's, would have happened, she said. There would have been millions of families who got tangled in predatory mortgages who would never have gotten them. Preventing the proliferation of those loans could have stopped the housing bubble from forming and then popping. It never would have been as profitable for mortgage brokers and others in the financial services industry to market those products because they would have not been such high-profit products, she's saying. If we would never have started at the front end, we never would have fed them into the financial system. So there never would have been this expansion in the housing market, this housing bubble. And more importantly, never the fodder that went in, ultimately, to the mortgage-backed securities that created the credit default swaps and so on through the system. Without all these toxic assets on banks' balance sheets, the institutions wouldn't be on the brink of collapse and the recession would have been more manageable. Consumer financial products were the front end of the destabilization of the American economic system, Warren said at the press conference. Yes, she is the real thing and scares the hell out of the pros whose lips are surgically attached to the butts of Wall Street. Thank you, Obama, for putting her in. And thank you, Ms. Warren, for being just who you are. Hey, it's, I think, the first day of fall, as we said. Fall is such a magical time. It, it, it's a time that transports me back after the summer into the past, into China, into the Tang. Into the Tang, and this is our third season with the Tang. We've had spring poems and summer, heat of summer poems, and now we're into the autumn poems. Oh, good. This is one of Han Yu's uh, poems, 768 to eight. 24. It's I mean, a long time to write a poem. That's, uh, well, it's, it's late at night. No, that's, uh, that's uh, what, 7th, 7th century, 12th 8th century, 9th wow. century. Wow, I mean, long that's a long time, time ago, ago, man. 13, 1400 years. Well, Sentiments of Autumn is 11 poems on the subject, so we'll have a few. But here's one of them. This is number four. Every day now, autumn air more troubling sad. Autumn skies more trembling cold. Above, no cicadas on the branches. Below, no flies in the bowls. Who's not stirred by the season's change that rids the senses of these small pains? In dawn's light, I close my books and sit watching the high ridges of the southern mountains, below which the clear pools water where dragons chilled cold can be caught. Oh, but I cannot go there. Yet, who would say I lack the skill? 
Wow. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for the rest of his autumn. Well, this is this is the autumn of Radio Free Oz. And Radio Free Oz is brought to you by the Oz team. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, co-host David Osman. Uh, we're recorded by and in the studios of uh, Dave Maloney. Um, Bill McIntyre is our producer. Phil Fountain runs the Oz Design Group, does our graphics. Scott Wilde does all the all the web building and all the social media, and Tom Gidwillow does all the web mastering, and Chaz Glass does all the number crunching and all the good financial advice. It's a wonderful time and a wonderful team, and have a wonderful time, and see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.